You ready to get started today? Here we go. We're in a series called Surprised, and what we want to do is obviously be surprised, but in a really good way. We don't like bad surprises, but we like good surprises, and aren't you thankful that you serve a God who delights in giving you good surprises? Surprises are kind of like a mystery, though, and I, I like mystery. I, I didn't used to like it as much as I do now. Uh, whenever uh, I watch television, I tend to gravitate toward the nature programs because I'm enthralled with the mystery of animals and the things that they do instinctively and how they behave. And uh, Lisa and I always have a hummingbird feeder out on the corner of our deck in our backyard and we just love watching the hummingbirds. I think they're fascinating creatures. And uh, what's one, one thing that's fascinating about them is that they migrate south in the winter. Now, a lot of birds do that. But a hummingbird is only the size of a mouse. And those little critters will fly across the Gulf of Mexico. And how do they do that? I have no idea. But somehow they make it down to... Um, the area of Mexico and even South America. And then, of course, in the spring, they come back. Sometimes we don't have the feeder out in time, and we notice that all of a sudden, one day we're looking out the window, and there's a hummingbird, and it comes exactly to where our feeder is supposed to be. And he starts buzzing around and looking like, hey, come on, people, the feeder, where's the feeder? What's amazing to me is this little bird has flown hundreds of miles south, comes back and knows where I live. <laughs> well, he knows where the feeder is. I don't know. It's just amazing to me. When I was a kid, my dad had a hobby. It was beehives. And to, he studied bees and was just fascinated and enthralled with them. And even now at 88 years old, you can ask him questions about bees, and he will just start talking. You better be sitting down, because you're going to be there a while, because he's just fascinated with the intelligence of a little insect that the information is transitioned to them. I'm going to say through DNA, they're born with a knowledge of what to do without even being taught or trained. There's a mystery in that. And not only do animals have contain mystery, but we do as well. I remember in college, my, my favorite two courses were psychology and sociology. I thought they were fascinating, and I learned so much. But I never learned more than just a few months after Lisa and I were married. She made a statement to me that rocked my world, and I didn't know how to take it. There was no place in my brain for this information. I kept saying to myself, this does not compute, it does not compute, it does not compute. We were having a discussion, thank the Lord it wasn't one of our arguments. It's just a discussion. But I noticed in Lisa there were two things happening. There was, there was a tension and there was also a sullenness. There, there was the agitation and then a melancholy and these were kind of going back and forth, and I'm trying to figure out what was happening, and then she unloaded this information on me that blew me away. She made a statement. She said, Chris, I think I just need a good cry. I'm a man. <laughs> the word good and cry never go together. <laughs> never. 
They should be eternally separated. So I didn't know how to process that. But in that moment, I realized that my wife is more complex than what I had previously realized, which is always a good lesson for a man. That's the way we are in life. We're complex. And there are things that happen in our life that we try to understand. And then when we, of course, throw in God into that equation, who is very complex and very intricate, and what he does on the earth and what he does in people's lives, we're trying to figure it out and we're trying to understand it. And there's great mystery and there's tension. As we continue our series on surprise, I'm asking you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter number 2, and we're walking through the book of Acts right now. The book of Acts, chapter number 2, is one of those times when God does something that he had already told us that he was going to do. There's prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about this event that was going to happen. John the Baptist talked about it. And now in Acts, chapter 2, it happens. And there's great mystery And there's some tension involved in this, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read the first four verses of this chapter. When the day of Pentecost came, now Pentecost was an Old Testament festival. It was a festival of the first fruits, where the people of God, the Jewish people, would bring uh, the first fruits of their harvest, Whatever they had been growing agriculturally, they brought it into the temple or the synagogue and they offered it there uh, as an offering to God. So that's what this festival was all about. And there was a lot of other things surrounding that, but that's the basis of it. So when the day of Pentecost came, this festival came, they, about 120 disciples of Christ who were followers of his, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven And filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In these verses, we see mystery and there's some tension there as well. If you look at those 120 people... What we find is there were two different genders, and only two. There were four different personality types, and if you're into the Enneagram, there were actually nine, with multiple wings. I don't understand that, but my wife does. There were multiple ages, there were married and single There were multiple occupations, there were multiple economic levels, there were multiple ideas about what was going to happen. And yet there was 120 disciples who were there for the exact same purpose, but they actually didn't know what was going to happen. What they do is, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you're going to receive power. But they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how, when, where, what's this going to look like feel like, what's going to happen? And yet they were all together. They were all unified together. They were told, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there was so much that they didn't know. And in that verse number one, it says they were all together. Now, if you have the King James Version, it says they were all in one accord. So that word together or accord really means of one mind with one passion 
and they were unified or they were in unity. And that's what we're going to talk about today is unity. Because unity is that mystery and it has some tension to it. Within this one word, we see both of those, and yet we also see the desired state of the church, unity. We instinctively know that we need unity to both survive and to succeed, but we also know that having unity and maintaining unity is not as easy as it might seem. Ask any person who's married or divorced how easy unity is. It's not easy. It's worth it, but it's not easy. I love it when uh, young, younger people, uh, God, it's bad when you're saying younger people, and you're talking about people at 25. It's, how old does that make me? <clears throat> well, when they ask me, how long have you been married? I say, well, it's 36 years. And they go, wow. And then they, some of them will be brave enough to say, well, how'd you do that? And I said, well, it's tough, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I love being married. I love being married to my wife. I don't, don't, have never thought about anybody else. We got married really young. We're only 39 now. <laughs> Man, y'all didn't buy that for a minute, did you? <laughs> Unity is not easy, but it's very much worth it. But there's a mystery and there's a tension And science has proven to us that when we're feeling tension or agitated, if we'll name it, if we'll talk about it, the tension begins to alleviate. Because part of the tension is just having the mystery of what am I feeling and what am I experiencing. So for a moment now, let's talk about the mystery and the tension and get that kind of out of here. And then we'll get into the power that we experience through unity. There is a tension in unity between autonomy and community autonomy and community. And let's talk about that for just a few moments, and I'm going to kind of go through this quickly because I don't want to get bogged down here. There is an unhealthy autonomy. Now, the word autonomy comes from a combination of Greek words, auto meaning self and nomos meaning law or self-law. In the English language, we would flip that over and we would make a statement something like, I am a law to myself. In other words, I decide what's right, I decide what's wrong, I decide what's good and bad, I decide what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to treat people. I decide all of that because I'm a law to myself. So there is an unhealthy autonomy. Unhealthy autonomy is when self is full of self. In other words, I decide what I'm going to think, what I'm going to say, how I'm going to treat people, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it. I don't need a teacher, I don't need a mentor, I don't need a guide, I don't need anybody. I'm totally self-sufficient. It is one of the uh, personality traits of a narcissist. And we we take it to the extreme of unhealthy autonomy when we just think we're self-sufficient. That is detrimental to community. But there's a healthy autonomy, which is really assurance. When we look at ourselves and we say, I know who I am. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. I know my knowledge and my wisdom. And I also know I need more knowledge and more wisdom. I know my gifts. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know my purpose in life. That's a healthy autonomy. When we recognize that we are who we are, the good, the bad, the ugly, 
and we're okay with that. We're always trying to improve, but we're okay not being perfect. But we're confident in who we are as a person and as a follower of Christ. And so we look at unhealthy autonomy is way over there. Healthy autonomy is more toward the center where we, we understand who we are, but we also understand we need other people. And the disciples were constantly wrestling with this autonomy. How far do, how far do we go with autonomy? One, of the, one day, the two of the disciples came to Jesus, and uh, it was kind of in secret, I think. And they said, uh, hey, look, we know you're coming into your kingdom, and one day you're going to be sitting on your throne. We just have one small little request. Um, could one of us sit on your left hand and one of us sit on your right hand? We'd like to be like right there next to your throne there. And what they actually didn't ver- verbalize was actually saying, and all the other little people can go wherever they want to go, but we're going to be on your left and on your right. In other words, they were saying, we are so important. Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. He said, you've asked a question, you don't even understand the question. You're asking for too much. You're putting yourself in a bad position. The Apostle Peter was one that struggled with this all the time, this autonomy of being unhealthy and healthy. He struggled with that. It was a time when it was, it was the end of Jesus' ministry here on, on earth, and Jesus said, hey, listen, uh, listen uh, they're, they're going to arrest me, and then they're going to kill me. Remember what Peter said? Peter said, oh, no, uh-uh, not going to happen. Nope, not going to happen. You know what, Jesus? Jesus gave such a powerful response. He said, listen, um, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. You're not concerned with things of heaven. You're concerned with this stuff on earth. When Jesus and the disciples were in the room and they had received uh, the Passover for that last time, and then Jesus takes off his outer robe, ties a, 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 a towel around his waist, and he gets a basin of water and he starts washing all the disciples' feet. Remember what happened when he got to the apostle Peter? Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus basically said, well, if that's the way you want it, then you have nothing to do with me. See, Peter was saying, I am my own person. I get to do what I want. I make the decisions. You're not washing my feet. Jesus said, cool. Then you have nothing to do with me. That's when Peter said, oh, I don't need to be way out there on my island. I need to pull in here. And he goes, okay, then not just my feet, wash wash everything. Remember when Jesus was arrested? Remember what Peter did at the, the arrestment in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember? Remember? He, he draws a sword, and he takes a swing at one of the guards. I'm assuming that the guard saw it coming and went, whoa, and he just whacks off one of his ears. Jesus said, you've gone too far. This is not what's supposed to be happening right now, and he picks up the guy's ear and puts it back on his head. Incredible. The unhealthy autonomy says it's all about me, and I get to make the rules. A healthy autonomy says I know who I am. I'm confident in who I am, but I also know that I need people. Community. We're talking about autonomy versus community. Well, what, is, what are we talking about when we say community? There is an unhealthiness to community when people think that they have to give up everything in order to be about the community or the church. 
And there are some people who really resist coming to church and trying to integrate in because they're like, oh man, I just know they're, I got to give up my hobbies. I got to give up my personality. I've just got to blend in with everything that I got to act like them and talk like them and look like them and dress like them. And I got to go. And all of our kids can only play with each other. And it's like, oh, I'm not doing that. And I don't blame you. That's an unhealthy community. That's one of the characteristics of a cult. When nobody has personality, no one stands up or out in any way. All the gifts are just diminished, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, and we just kind of morph into one person in 52 bodies. It's homogenous. It all just becomes vanilla, and, and nobody really accomplishes anything except we just sing together kumbaya. It's unhealthy community. But what is healthy community? Healthy community is when we are experiencing unity while maintaining individuality. That God wants you to be you. He wants you to exercise your gifts and knowledge and talents and abilities while connected in experience with other people who are doing the same thing. So healthy community and healthy autonomy begins to look like this. It begins to look like you with others. You. With all of your wisdom, all of your anointing, all of your gifts, all of your knowledge, all of your experience, everything about you comes and says, I am here with others who are doing the same thing. And that's why God gives every one of us gifts. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit endues us with gifts that we're to use them within the body of Christ. Aren't you thankful that your body, your literal body, is not made up of just thumbs? We're not supposed to all look alike, be the same, do the same. We're supposed to be different. We need some elbows, some ankles, some toes, some noses. Well, just one. You see what I'm saying? So we see that tension between unhealthy autonomy says, I don't care what anybody says. Unhealthy community, I care what everyone says. (laughs) But when we have healthy autonomy and healthy community, we recognize who we are and we submit that to the body of Christ. And that is unity. In 2019, we did a series on the Apostles' Creed and we we really uh, nailed it with three different words. How we deal with three different issues. Every one of us have uh, theology. Theology is what you believe about God. And also we have churchology, what you believe about the people of God. And those are issues that we hold in our hearts and minds. And we broke it down into three different categories. One was a pencil issue. In other words, we have pencil issues about what we believe, right? You have a belief about maybe uh, how old a child should be with the first time they receive communion. Um, you might have a, a pencil issue about what you're supposed to wear to church. Are you allowed to wear jeans or do you have to wear a three-piece suit? I'll tell you right there. You can wear whatever you want to at Oak Crossings. You can come in here and ball gown for all I care. It doesn't matter because it's just a pencil issue, right? So we look at pencil issues, and we, we write those things in pencil because we recognize the fact there might be a time in life when we need to pull out the eraser and go, and then write something else. We can change those. It's what we believe, but it's not really that important, and certainly other people can believe whatever they want. Well, then there are ink issues. There are things that that are personal conviction to us. 
and we hold them strongly and we hold them dearly, but we also recognize that there's room in this for other people to have a different conviction. Some of you have the conviction that you will not drink alcohol at all, and you do that as a service to the Lord. But others have an issue and say, well, that's, that's not an issue for me. I don't get drunk. That's wrong. The Bible is clear about that. But other people don't have that same conviction. So we write those issues in ink. They're important to us, and we maintain them, and we hold them, and we're going to. But we also recognize that just because it's my conviction doesn't mean it should be everyone's conviction. That's an ink issue. But then there's blood issues. We're talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. Then there's non-negotiables. Those issues are God is perfect. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. God made man perfect, and man messed it up. God provided one Savior for the entire world, and that is Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who left heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, performed miracles, taught us the way because he is the way. And then he was handed over to the enemy. He was crucified by his very creation. He didn't faint. He literally died. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Those are blood issues, non-negotiables. We don't waver on those. We, we don't hold back on those. We don't change our mind about those. He was buried. But thank God he didn't stay there. Three days later, the Spirit of God raised him from the dead, and he lives forever to make his promises known in our lives. Those are blood issues, and we don't change those. The difficulty with unity in the body of Christ is when we take a pencil issue and we treat it like a blood issue. And we take a blood issue and we treat it like a pencil issue. When we do that, we begin to see unity corrode. It begins to crumble. Unity is vitally important. The disciples were together. They were in one accord. They had one purpose. We don't even know what's going to happen, but we're here with that same purpose. We're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit because we need the power of God in our lives to do what God's called us to do and fulfill what God's called us to do. We don't know, how it's going to, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we do know why we're here. There's different personalities, different economic levels. There's different, 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 but we are unified on why we're here. Every one of us have come into this place from different cultures and different backgrounds. Some are born in other nations. Some are, of course, here in America. Most are born here in America, and yet we still come from different cultures. But the cultures that we come from are not big enough to separate us because we are united by Christ. Our differences don't separate us. Christ unites us. And so then we celebrate our differences. Never celebrate sin, but we celebrate differences. And we enjoy that in one another because we know what unifies us, and that is our experience of being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and our sins are forgiven. Amen? I remember when we started Hope Crossings, it wasn't very long, and we, we just had a wonderful, wonderful, awesome invasion of people who spoke Spanish. We had not planned on that. 
It was nowhere on our radar. It was not even the thought of that. And all of a sudden, our church became one-third people who speak English only, one-third of people who only speak Spanish, and a third that was bilingual. And we're like, what do we do with this? We said, we're going to go with it. And we went with it. We started translating our services into Spanish. I would say a few words, and then the interpreter would say a few words, and I'd say a few words, and he'd say a few words, and we got through it. i got to tell you, it was wonderful. You know, usually I preach for 30 minutes, but you know, when you do it that way, you only have a 15-minute sermon. Hey, that's easy, man. That was cool. Yes. We stopped translating. I said, man, i got to go back to preaching, man. What am I going to do now? i got to do a whole sermon. And one thing I learned in all of that is that Spanish is a much better language than English. Much, it's much better. I can prove it to you in just five seconds. Everybody say this word out loud, chocolate. chocolate. Now turn to the person next to you and say, chocolate. <laughs> See there? Spanish is a better language. I've been told by some that that's what we're going to speak in heaven. I don't know. Okay, so we've alleviated the tension. We recognize autonomy. Healthy autonomy is good, along with healthy community. Both together is powerful. But what are the results of unity? What is the power that we have in unity? Number one is that heaven impacts earth. Look at verse number two there, if you still have your Bibles open. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. When the body of Christ unites together, and when we experience unity, and I'm not talking about perfect unity, I'm talking about unity. What we have is that heaven impacts earth. God came to earth to change it. He came to earth to change me and to change you and to change us. That's the whole reason why Christ came. He said, I love you just the way you are, and I love you so much, I will not leave you like that. I love you so much, I'm going to save you from your sin. I love you so much, I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I love you so much, I'm going to empower you and gift you and lead you so that you fulfill the purpose that I have for you. And we find that in unity. Heaven impacts earth. And as we long and, and, and look forward to what God has in store, not only for Hope Crossings, but much more beyond our walls, out into our entire community, unity is, we are, through unity, we are going to see heaven impacting Jackson County. And it's going to be in a way that we go, whoa, I didn't even know that was going to happen. Whoa, how did that even transpire? Whoa. We're going to be surprised by how heaven impacts earth. Because we have unity. Not only within this fellowship of believers, but we must have unity within other churches to the level that we can. We're not talking about perfect. We're not talking about perfect. We're talking about unity. Remember, what unites us is stronger than what divides us. Stronger than all of our differences. Jesus said, I have longed to gather you like a hen would gather her chicks He says, I've longed to bring unity, to bring you together with unity. We do not find unity in a doctrine. We find unity in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst for anything else again. That's unification. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your weary souls when you come to me. That's the unity. The second thing that happens in the power of unity is that God levels the playing field. Verse number three, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Man, aren't you thankful? There's 120 people in the room. Aren't you thankful that like 60, there was a, this, I don't know what, I don't even know what that fire looked like. I just, you can use your imagination as good as I can. But aren't you glad that 60 didn't like get it and 60 didn't like not get it? You know? First church split right there, day of Pentecost, you know? (laughs) Well, the church lasted 24 minutes and then it just separated, you know? No. Everybody. God levels the playing field. In the Old Testament, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was on many people, but predominantly was prophet, priest, and king. But all through the Old Testament, he says there's coming a day when it's not going to be like that. There's coming a day when I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and you're... Remember? It's what Peter quoted from Joel. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Parents, let me ask you something. What, what are you going to do when your daughter prophesies at Hope Crossings? You're going to rejoice, right? You'll be like... Whoa, I know that's real because I know my daughter and I know my son and I know that's real. What are you going to do when we begin to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating within the body of Christ, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom? We're going to go, I know those people. They're not making that up. That's that's a thing from God. And he's saying, I've given the Holy Spirit to all who follow me. I've given the Holy Spirit to all who seek me, and I, I give you gifts, and I give you abilities that are far beyond your natural ability. God levels the playing field. There's, there's no more you know, big shot and little shot. Don't you, you know, there's 12 apostles, but there were 120 people in the room. Aren't you glad? The, tw- the 12 like, didn't get a bigger flame of fire. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, we're all on level ground at the cross. It's level ground. God levels the playing field. The third thing we find when we have the power of unity is that God fills everyone. God fills everyone. Verse number four, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled. What is the most important part of that verse? All of them were filled. That's the desire of God, and that's the desire of us as followers of Christ, that we be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's the desire of God that we be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's what happened here. Today, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and next week, we're going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Next month, we're going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but the life that we live and the people that we come in contact with Sometimes I leak out and I say things I'm not supposed to say and just some of that Holy Spirit power just kind of goes, whoop, gone. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I only yell at the stupid people when I drive, but there are some people out there like that. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Why were they filled with the Holy Spirit? And why are we filled with the Holy Spirit? And why do we need that? They were filled with God so they could tell the lost about God so the lost would know God and then be filled with God. Let me say it again. They were filled with God so they could tell the lost about God so the lost would know God and be filled with God. Now let's make it personal. We. We are filled with God so we can tell the lost about God so the lost can know God and then be filled with God. That's our job as ambassadors. We cannot do what God's called us to do without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going back. I'm going away, but don't worry about it. I'm going to send another comforter to you. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to tell you about things that that I didn't have time to tell you about. He's going to tell you and he's going to reveal things to you that, you that no one else has ever revealed to you before. There's coming a time. I'm going back, but he is coming, the spirit of truth. And on the day of Pentecost, God made it very clear and very evident, the Holy Spirit has come. And now it's you and I's time, our season. This is our time in history to say, God, I want to fulfill the purpose that you have for me. And so, Lord, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? What is important about being filled with the Holy Spirit? It's just that, being filled with the Holy Spirit so you can fulfill the purpose God has placed you on this planet to do. That's what it's about. 